This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, you're listening to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashran Johan. Tinza Shonlei is a human rights advocate and activist based in Yangon, Myanmar. She's the first woman coordinator of the National Youth Congress um, and a two-term president of the Yangon Youth Network. Um, she was also one of the Obama Foundation's inaugural selected um, hashtag Obama leaders for the Asia-Pacific region. And I'm just barely scratching the surface of this activist, um, her, her whole host of experience over the years. Now, over the past year, Tinza Shunlei has also been fiercely resisting the military junta that seized control of Myanmar last year via a coup. Welcome to the show, Shunlei. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me here. Um, tell me about the work that you're actively engaging with right now. So after the coup attempt, you know, almost uh, all the work that I've been doing have been kind of re-strategized into uh, more of a resistance against the military Honda and their uh, kind of political and also M resistance, you know, against the peoples of the country. So uh, what I've been currently focusing is the first thing we will say um, defection, because now um, we are having um, a war, right? A war against uh, the people behind the military. And so uh, we are kind of advocating for more defection from the military and also from the police station. So basically I organize and host kind of a talk show inviting defeated soldiers. We already have more than 2,000 defeated soldiers around the whole nation. So we invited them to talk about what their experiences and also we advocate for further defection. And that's a way that we're trying to uh, bring peace to in, in the country. And another thing is I also largely heavily um, kind of focusing on the uh, sisterhood solidarity among the revolutionary sisters because um, you know, we're not just uh, re- revolving against the military, but also their ideologies, basically the patriarchal mindset in the militarized societies. Why do you call them a patriarchal force? The militaries around the world are led by men most mm-hmm. of the time. And these men were guided by the strong men characteristics. You know, basically they have to rely on their strengths, their physical appearances. So they tend to... Um, um, look down on the women. And that's one of the reasons why we have less women in the militaries around the world. And uh, needless to say, Myanmar as a conservative society, military is kind of notorious about the extremist um, ideas like nationalism. And um, so in, in that kind of sense, they are um, they hate women. They are misogynists. They hate. They hate women revolving against them. And one reason why they target women activists and attacking women online. So recently, in the in this Women's History Month, we launched a campaign called Telegram Hearts Women. That is a campaign that we're trying to bring attention of the Telegram as a messenger app. Um, they are hosting different pro-military misogynist groups and allowing to attack women activists and human human rights defender and based on our research we see one of the like in one of their channels out of different posts like 
10, uh, eight out of 10 posts that they've been posting are about women activists and women human rights defenders. So they, the military and the pro-military people find it easier and to attack women, to target women. So that, that's how, because they are more irritated uh, by the women as the revolutionaries against their plans, against right. their so as long as we have that military coup, we're going to see more and more patriarchal ideas spreading around. And then the society will be normalized under this kind of ideas. And we, can't, when we cannot tolerate because we have suffered this in the past many decades under military regimes. We exactly know how is it like being a woman under military regime. So that's why I think many more women are now involved in the revolution, the front line, because we know exactly uh, how is it like. It's so important that we stand in solidarity with each other, especially women. So I also organized sister to sister campaigns um, in the past uh, one year or so. And that these are like two main things for now I'm focusing on. And other there are many other different initiatives that I'm uh, quite involved with. Um, yeah, it's basically yeah. many things. Yeah. Yes, it's an endless list and you are very, very active. But as I understand your journey in activism, it didn't just begin recently. You've been doing this for a while. But when exactly did your journey in activism begin? So I came from a very typical family uh, from the majority uh, ethnicity, religious. And so I never known the other stories of the minorities and what is going on in other different ethnic areas in the countries. And I you know, when I finished my uh, high school, I was uh, meeting different friends from different regions. Basically, I attended military high school because I, I, I was raised inside the military compound. Normally, I have only friends from the same ethnicity and same religion and same background, right? So we think the same thing. We add the same thing. So when I get out of high school, I was in the, in the university. And that was the time that I was so shocked, like it was a culture shock for me too, that I came to know a lot about what is going on in the other side. And I had no idea about them. And I think because of that awareness and the exposures about democracy, human rights, and also, um, you know, why people are resisting against the military that I, I, I was from, you know, I was so um, kind of amazed by their courage right. and the resistance. So they inspire me. So these are like very beginning point for me to become and, an advocate. And how long ago was this? It was a decade ago. You brought up military school and that's something that I absolutely did not anticipate at all. Um, how did that come about? Um, tell me about the, the, the kind of um, upbringing you had. Um, what was it like with your family? Because um, why did they, was it like always part of the plan to send you to military school? Is that what um, people in your family um, always did? Like, did they all attend military school? I, I find that so interesting. Why military school? So military is, um, in Myanmar, they are like isolated uh, institutions. We have our own uh, hospitals, schools, and our own community. So we rarely engage with the other different outside community. And when we out, um, you know, I kind of remember when I was really young, my father is a captain, now he's retired. And whenever I was out, out of the military unit, you know, I find it really 
um, different, you know, than the way we are living inside the military compound because the whole military compound is the world, like only world to me. So when I'm out, people kind of gave favors to to us, and they prioritize ads. And I wasn't aware that they were doing this because they were scared of it, you know, scared of my fa- my 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 father and his rank. He's a captain, so he could do anything to them. So basically, mm-hmm. they are fearful of us, but in a way, they kind of favor us and yeah so many of the kids of the um, soldiers family especially the officials they send their kids only to the military high schools and the middle school primary school so that you know we are all we're brought up the same um, you know listening the same thing from the military propagandists so your father, who's now retired, um, is when you say he's part of the military as a captain, is this the same military that you know we are talking about as in the same body that has essentially um, done the coup against the democratically elected government? Is it, is it the military junta we are talking about here? Yes, because um, when we were, when I realized I'm from the military background, you know, I was born into this family and it, right. I didn't choose it. But when that time I realized when I look back, it was the time under the military regimes, right? Way before the first election that we had. In Myanmar, we had a first election in 2010. So my father um, left the military like around 2008, right. 2000 seven, eight, around that time before the election. So, yeah, basically under the military regime, he was a part of the, you know, mechanism, military mechanism. Right. So how did that work out? Because you say you grew up in a, in a family that was part of, you know, uh, a specific ethnicity. Um, You're all part of the military family. You went to military school. You were essentially shielded from what, you know, going on in the outside, um, the minority struggles and, and the struggles of underprivileged communities and things like that. Um, and then now, you know, you, you essentially um, left all of that and now you are, you know, in direct resistance um, against the military. Um, for the past decade, you've been working on, um, you know, fighting against human rights violations and, and so on and so forth. How did your family react to it, especially your father, who knows of, about the strength and the might of the military in Myanmar? Yes, basically, uh, I wasn't like an activist like overnight. You know, right. I have my time um, to transition to become a human rights activist. And uh, basically, I have uh, like a very basic principle, Buddhist principles, because I was religious and I really respect Buddha. Um, Mm -hmm. And also I learned to be a good Buddhist, you know, basically to love uh, humankind, to spread, you know, to contribute back to community. These are like very basic principles that I um, have uh, also as a kid when I was in the military as well. And I think because of that, I can tolerate different views and different uh, diverse, you know, community and so on. So when I was out, I was only 16 that time. And Obviously, I had a lot of debate with my friends, like new friends. You know, they were like uh, uh, the, the, they were the children of the former political prisoner and so on. They gave me different information and I wasn't believing in that. You know, I was arguing that I was debating with them. And that time, I think I was also um, uh, fortunate that I have friends who helped me go through this. Like they were not shying away from me. They were not neglecting me. They were helping me understand more about it. And I was also helping them to understand what is actually going on inside the military because we have no idea. 
uh, about each other. Right. So yeah, that's how I think we grow each other uh, as a as a uh, young generation. But with my family also, um, they didn't know that I was doing politics thing, and they didn't <laughs> expect me to become an activist. And I was saying I'm doing volunteer work because I was trained to be a high school teacher. So I was teaching to, um, you know, orphans, people living with HIV and AIDS, you know, disabled kids and so on. So they were applauding me that I was doing good thing, like volunteer works. But mm-hmm. in the end, I ended up volunteering for the political movement and they were shocked. And yeah, they tried to stop me and not just themselves, but also other different relatives. They were scared. And they told me that I'm not in the right position to criticize the leadership because I'm just nobody. And they these like um, generals, like military dictator, they are there for a reason, you know? Right. So they were doing good things in the past life. That's why they deserve this kind of power position. So I couldn't agree with this, you know? So we are a lot of having, of course, a lot of debate with my father, with my mother. Yeah, everyone. <laughs> right. And what, what, so what's the situation like right now? Um, are you still debating with them? It's been, you know, 10, 10 years or so. Um, is there still uh, heated debates in your, in your household or have they, you know, fully come on board to your causes that you're championing and supporting you all the way? Yeah, it wasn't an easy way. Like Mm -hmm. I have to break through this, like all the, you know, but I think my father raised me to become an independent, strong woman because I'm the eldest, you know, eldest child in the family and I'm supposed to take care of the whole family. So he raised me to be independent and strong. And just because of it, I became who I am now. And he couldn't debate with me, you know, because I have all (laughs) the reason. (laughs) I have all the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. So in the end, he had to give up that, yeah, I am. I have my points and that's how he raised me. So he can't stop me and none of them could stop me. <laughs> and yeah, that's how I think. Um, stay, obviously, you know, there are a lot of issues that they don't understand. They couldn't understand, right? So I've been giving a lot of different information that they don't know. Um, so I always have an answer on why I'm doing what I'm doing. So that's how I think I try to play my position and my power inside the household. You know, what's interesting is you started off in that household and then, you know, you, uh, you grew and you learned and you, you participated, you became an act- activist, one of the, the most, uh, you know, fearless activists right now, young activists, especially in Myanmar. Um, you also then became the first woman coordinator of the National Youth Congress. Um, how did all of that come about? That experience was also, um, you know, people just kind of told me um, now she's interested in politics and but, you know, she's a woman and a young person. It would be just like um, she would disappear soon. You know, that, that, that is always a challenge. People always gave me like they didn't expect a young woman like me could grow up and could be persistent, you know, because young people are always being kind of judged that we have different attention on different things and and we never excel in one thing, right? We don't stick up with one thing. We always move around our careers and sort of stuff. So I think I want to break that stereotype on the young people, especially women. So I try to be persistent with what I'm doing and I you know, try to show that this is possible. It is possible for young people like us to transition. You know, we just need exposure. We need, because people like us were born inside the military. That was not our choice. We didn't choose this, you know. We didn't choose to be 
a part of that, you know, the oppressive system. Right. But we have the choice. We can make that choice ourselves with that consciousness. So I, I'm also want to show this to my other friends inside the military compound that it is possible to be a human rights activist. It is possible to stand with the right thing, you know. So I think that's how I push it myself. I push myself. I cross many lines. I break many lines. Um, yeah, for that I pay my I pay the price too, right? Because I receive a lot of threats and harassment. The military itself charged me for like for my activism, and they tag me and my family as a betrayer of the institution. Um, they excluded me, and not just from that side, but also I stand against the genocide in the country. And I also receive a lot of different um, criticism from the pro-government, pro-NLD people. So it's really hard for, um, and I couldn't stay believe it, like for human rights activists to stay face such things, you know, even after 70 years of the human rights existing in the in the world. I still can't believe this shouldn't be that way, you know? Certainly. Absolutely. All right. We're going to go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Tinza Shunlei. She's a human rights defender from Myanmar. After the break, I talk to her about the current crisis ongoing in Myanmar. We'll be back with more on Good Things BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things, the show where we speak to good people who are doing good things. On the show with me today is Tinza Shunlei. She's a human rights defender from Myanmar. So Shunlei, I want to pick up on something where you talked about how you know you speak to your friends, uh, many of whom grew up in military families themselves. It wasn't your choice. You, know, you didn't choose to grow up in this family that's part of the oppressive system. Um, but you know, you, like you said, you know, people do have a choice to come out of it, to understand what's going on um, in, in the lives of the marginalized and, and so on and so forth. Over the years, have you managed to convince many of your friends um, of your cause I think even for now, after a decade-long activism, there are still doubts on mm-hmm. my, you know, principles. I'm still young, and I think I have to bear this mistrust. Um, now the military is condemning more and more crimes against the people, and the people are really angry about military, like everything, and they don't want to even hear uh, about the military or they don't want to associate with anybody from the military. So right. when they see me as an activist coming out from the military, they still feel like, um, can, can we trust her? You know, something like this. Even after 10 years, I think 10 years wasn't enough for the people to believe someone like me. Um, they always think uh, I came from the majority background and I would never know the, the plight of the minorities. And I agree with this. You know, I would never understand 100% of what the minorities being went through, you know, in their whole life because I've never been in their shoes. Um, so I, I know that the privileges I grew up with as a majority ethnicity, as a majority religious member, also a member of the military family. Right. I stay enjoying some of the privileges, you know, uh, at the same time. So I think I appreciate the the privileges that I was given. Um, but also I'm trying to use these privileges for the um, voiceless people, for the people who are underprivileged. Um, the same age friends I grew up with in the military high school, I would say they are, they were, 
for now, right, after the coup attempt, they were not supporting right. supporting the military crimes. And some of them were really angry and like a few of them were really acting against them. So I would say it's stay hard for the um for the people inside the military or where where a part of the military to came out and say we we are against you, you know, we don't like you and we should stop right away, etc. I think I think people find it really difficult to break that kind of, you know, ceilings. That's why I'm advocating through my different channels that we, we people coming from the military background should do more because we enjoy the privileges and we need to pay back to the community. We need to um, do more than the other people, you know. Certainly. I want to talk to you about the current cri- crisis that's ongoing in Myanmar. Take me back to the moment the coup happened. Do you remember where you were, what you were doing? And, and did the coup come as a surprise? I was surprised that I never thought like the military would be that stupid enough to do that kind of thing. You know, <laughs> to be honest, to be honest, I thought they might be a bit smarter and strategic in terms of because they already enjoy a lot of power. Um, according to the constitution, they drafted by themselves. So why would they do it? Right. It, it would be like um um another uh punch to bind themselves to right. themselves so um so i would say i was surprised by that news and i was also shocked and because i could foresee what is coming um uh, basically i we've been like kind of uh receiving a lot of signal that the military is kind of increasing their oppression against the activists and different resistance forces. For myself, like even way before the military coup, I was receiving a lot of threat coming from direct from the military intelligence that they are monitoring my movement. They are pressuring my father. They even call my father to stop me, what I'm doing. So my father was freaking out, like, what are you doing? What did you do? You know, they were. he was so um, kind of worried about me and sort of stuff. At that time, they were, it, it was a pandemic time, right? Right. So we foresee that something is coming, but we didn't see this this in a, in a final coup. Right. right. So I would say on that day, I was at home with my parents. My father knocked my door and then he told me that this happened. I couldn't believe it. And I was shocked and I was dozed out like for like for a moment. And then immediately after some time, I, I like, you know, get back myself and I trying to write my own statement that I condemn this coup attempt like publicly on my social media. Right. And I inform my friends around the world that this is happening. Please stand in solidarity with the Myanmar in our revolution. You know, I made my statements in that time. And I started giving a lot of interviews to different medias about what is happening and what my feeling about it. So that day was pretty intense. The moment the coup happened, the people of Myanmar, from activists and later people themselves, regular civilians, came out and said they do not stand for this. It was a widespread resistance against the junta. Did you immediately um, take it to the streets after you know you did your statement uh, on social media, uh, which was very important? Uh, after that, um, did you uh, gather your, your comrades and, and take it to the streets? 
it took us a while to mm-hmm. convince people, even 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 like our friends, to get out on streets. People right. would say, "Why won't we get on street to just get killed?" You know, because the military has a long history of killing protester. Right. So recently, they have been killing in the in the Oregon state and in, in the into in the Rakhine protester, and they just don't you know, stop the protester with the water canoe and the, you know, sort of, they would just cave immediately. So people, people like when we hear the news about the coup, it was a kind of a license to cave by the military, you know, before they couldn't cave freely as much as they want because there was a civilian government. But now after the coup, we know that they are killing. So that was a time uh, everybody was freaking out and we couldn't do anything. We couldn't organize anything. And then at the same time, there were a lot of different rumors coming out, like anyone who get on the street will be um, kind of um, military people, you know, military west um, kind of instigate people to come out because they want to kill. So that was a kind of very complex situation. So people were kind of stopped from going out, find the, find the uh, government people as well by the NLD, the ruling party people, they were advocating not to get out on the street. Um, so it was so hard for us. And as an activist, I, the first thing we have to do it, we try to convince people why we have to get out on the streets. It took us oh, like many days. It took right. like, um, I think, some days to convince people to get out on the street. And mm-hmm. only on 6, um, 6 February in Yango, there was a large protest by the by the workers, and on seventh we kind of organized a, a, a protest on seven in the same time, and we marched to the um, Sule pagoda in the center point, something like this. So it took mm-hmm. us basically a week to launch the revolution. Shunle, I've spoken to many activists who shared stories about going up against the police, um, which, you know, and we are talking about water cannons, we are talking about, you know, being dragged into police vehicles and so on and so forth, which it's scary in and of itself. It's haunting to even think about. But what you and the people of Myanmar are facing right now is the military junta. And we are not talking about water cannons. We are talking about them just going on the streets and directly killing people. Uh, what was your personal experience like? Have you ever been in like one of those situations where, you know, the military is on one side and you are directly, um, you know, in opposition with them? Um, what, what was the experience like taking it to the streets with, with against the military who have weapons and at any time they can just kill you? And, and they have killed people, young people. They have even killed medical students over the past one year. Um, it was trailing. It was crazy, and it was kind of unexpected. And um, like every morning, uh, when we're trying to get out, we like leave a note to our family, you know, or we kind of keep the note with us. So when we got killed, somebody will pick this up and we inform our families that we are killed or we got like hurt, or like we even write our own blood type group on our on our hands so people can see if we need blood then they will know what what is our blood type so something this is so crazy I even wrote my own like you know kind of leave a note to my family written that writing that I love you mom dad you know something like this 
And I kept this note with my phone. So when I got came, my phone would be with me. And my, right. I always hand my phone on my around my neck. So um, yeah, somebody would. And I also <laughs> involve my, my parents' phone numbers to inform them, something like this. I, I'm listening to you. And, and frankly, I, I cannot be more inspired. I cannot be, be also at the same time, just absolutely mind blown. You're going in with the mindset that fully aware that this could be your last day. Um, yeah. You know, when you go and protest, how do you even think of something like that? What kind of conversations did you need to have with yourself? Or is this something that you've just prepared for for a long time? Uh, I think there are many other braver young people than me. You know, I think long before, like two years, three years ago, I was always thinking of getting killed by being an activist, just by being an activist, you know, uh, we, I could get killed or assassinated or like targeted online, offline, anytime. So that is something that we expect growing up as an activist in, in a country like Myanmar, you know, things can happen. Um, looking at the Rohingya genocide, you can imagine how it was so devastating time for us and history for us now. So I think yeah, in the in the revolution time, when we learned that this is a, a revolution, you know, um, against the military, not just about the coup, but about their their dictatorship, and right, that dictatorship is not. It's been like many times now that military is being insulting people, and we need to show that um, you can do it to us, you know, anymore. Not we are as a generation, we don't, we don't, we wouldn't, we won't tolerate it. So this is a very basic mindset for all the young people and. I think also we are inspire each other and then ourselves, the young people, for example, I was listening to um, a young person from the, uh, from the uh, outskirts area. She took bus like for two hours to get to the protest areas. She was coming alone and she said her friends uh, denying to come again. But she said she asked herself if she's not going out, then there will be less, one less people in the crowd and she don't want to do it she wants to be a part of the revolution she wants to show her resistance so she wants to add to the crowd so that's why she came you know uh, risking her life and so on that kind of thing she's not an activist but people like them have that kind of mindset that is totally inspired me and that totally kept me going till now because of those people I kept going so I think that's that's how it is we inspire each other on top of that, we've also been made aware over the past year that the Junta is also keeping a close eye on the internet and various social media channels. They are especially monitoring activists, journalists. Um, has that been a scary experience? After the coup attempt, like we stay say it's, a, it's an attempt because the coup attempt is not yet, comp- like the coup plan is not yet successful. So it's right. been an attempt and there is a bit resistance going on. So um, since that time, you know, we've been living with all that, um, you know, worry, concerns, also sorrows for our comrades, you know, getting killed, arrested. We have to deal with all the news coming up to us, like uh, many houses got bent uh, in different areas. Also, people were like killed, um, torch alive in different areas. So different news come into us many days. Even today, like these news never cease to end. So um, for us, I think we are aware. We are always struggling every day. The first thing is we need to do more 
for this revolution. So we need to revolt against them by different means. There are many different ways that we can join in as individual or as an organization. But at the same time, we know that military is instilling fear by perpetuating those kind of crimes. They are instilling fears. And we try to combat. I think this is basically internal work that we we have to revolt that fear inside ourselves first before we get out or we add on something. Sometimes we might be illusioned with all the worry, concern around us, like, oh, the military might be monitoring my phone, so I will stop using this phone or stop using this and that, you know, or I'm, I stop going out and stuff, stuff. Maybe that might not be the case, or maybe that's a kind of a thinking the military want us to be, you know, want us to think because they want us to be silent. So I think that's how we try to balance our activism every day, uh, even myself as well. I feel unsafe wherever I am in. Um, and also all the devices, I feel unsafe. But at the same time, I know that military may not have that kind of, you know, advanced technology to detect all of us. We still have some rooms that we can stay, uh, you know, do something to attack them, to, um, you know, revolt them. So we are playing with that kind of uncertainty every day. Um, I think it's, it goes the same for other different young people as well. We risk it. We risk to broaden our, you know, working space, civil space. And right. slowly, I think if we are joined by many more people, that civil space will be widened and the military have no capacity to, uh, to target us anymore. If we are more, right? If we are less and less, then it's easier. Military will target a few of us and then the, this way be gone. The thing about activism is, as I'm sure you definitely know, um, it's that throughout your journey, you will face many defeats. So oftentimes, um, it can seem like there are more defeats than victories, uh, although the victories can be very fulfilling and, and you know, it can be very sweet. What keeps you going? Because you know, on the one hand, now you're faced with the most extreme um, version of what you could possibly have imagined, and that's you know, the military... They are killing people on the streets and whatnot. But apart from that, like you said, throughout your journey in activism, you've gotten a lot of hate from people, um, hate from people in your community who thinks um, that, that uh, you know, you are perhaps um, betraying your community. You get hate from other people. Um, let's say uh, pe- people who ask, can they trust you? Um, you are part of the military family. Um, you know, you get all sorts of messages like these throughout the years, what keeps you going? What gives you the courage amidst all of these defeats to say, you know, I still want to do this? I think uh, one of the key factors is my principles because I follow the principles. I believe in human rights. I believe in democratic practices, democratic principles. And because these principles are there, we as a young generation are responsible to um, to be better, right? To be better than our previous generation. And that's how we grow as a society, as a generations to generations. And I think as a young generation, I feel responsible to um, be to be doing everything I can when I'm stay young, you know, using my young energy to uh, contribute back to the community. So I think that's one main thing. And another one is despite all the attacks and criticisms, these things cannot stop me because I am not doing what I'm doing just because people support me, you know. 
So I don't need popular support. I don't need right. people applaud, people praises to keep me going. I just need my principle to guide me. And I just need my own consciousness that I'm doing the right thing. So I need to be sure that I have done the best before I close my eyes every night. I want to be, um, you know, a fat day. I want to, like, even if I'm, I'm okay tomorrow, I won't have no regrets because I have done everything on my own with my own decision, my own consciousness. So I don't need people support and applaud to keep going. So I just need my principle. So that's, I think that's the main, one main uh, kind of mindset. I think many young generation need because people, young people need, tend to get more attack especially young women. So just because they attack us, we can't be silent. We shouldn't be silent. We shouldn't be just stop what, I, what we're doing because they don't matter at all because we are doing what is right to do, um, not what people support, you know. I think we should prioritize more on the oppressed because the oppressed need more defenders, human rights defenders for them. That's how we balance the society. That's how we make a better world. What has been your favorite memory from your years in activism? Um, there are many different memories, but I would say one of the main things uh, that popped up in my mind was when I was wearing so like an IDP person in the middle of the city. I was wearing, I was wearing <laughs> like an IDP with a baby uh, in my hands. That's a doll, like right. a, a fake baby. And I was... <laughs> Yeah, kind of doing a performance uh, for the IDP's people. Uh, I was sitting in the middle of the big city crowded areas, and I was writing something in front of my in front of my sitting that I was saying there was a kid blown up in the Shan State in northern Shan State. You know there is civil wars happening, and you may move move on. You know that does not matter for you. So something like this, like a provoking message wow. to people. And people stop. People feel like, you know, they got kind of kind of that message. They don't want to move on and they want to show the solidarity with me. So they stop and they look at me and they take picture and they ask me a lot of questions. Sort of stop. I think that memory stays stick with me and that made me grounded. Because most of the people stood by me were the grassroots people. You know, I was looking at their shoes. They had good shoes, expensive shoes, like passing by. They don't really care. But the ones with the daddy shoes, um, you know, from the grassroots community, they mm -hmm. stood by me. And they were, they care about me, you know, in the middle of the crowd. They really were care, like worried if I'm a real person from that area. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so that memory stay made me feel I need to work for more grassroots people. Progressive movement for the people on the ground. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, last year when I had you on in March, you said something that has stuck with me ever since. And regarding what's going on in Myanmar right now, the resistance, um, you said, and I quote, it's not an anti coup protest, it's a revolution, it's an uprising. And what you said earlier is, uh, you know, very poignant is this idea that this is an attempted coup. Because for a coup to be uh, successful, that means the overall the civilians have to accept 
them as the legitimate rulers of the country and run the economy. But that hasn't been the case. Um, people are resisting. Even until now, um, people are resisting in their own ways. Um, there are still active protests taking uh, going on. Um, in fact, um, in some communities in Myanmar, people have even taken up armed resistance against the military. With all of that in mind, before we wrap this conversation, what do you hope for the future of Myanmar? Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? I would say in terms of hope, I I would answer that we don't need hope to keep going. And the point is because sometimes things will be really, really dark, you know, and we couldn't even find any hope. But even in that situation, um, just because we, we can't find any hopes anymore for any way, then we should not stop. We should be going. And that's how I think I was trained that I'm not looking for hopes to keep me going. I'm looking for my own principle and, you know, to guide me and to keep going. That's how it is. But the point, you know, the situation in the country right now, I would say is a lot better than than previous four years, five years ago uh, in terms of morality, because back then there was a genocide actively happening and many people were standing with the with the government, with the military that, that time. I think that was the darkest time of our country's history. But now people are equally rejecting the military. People are saying this is not right. People are saying this is not fair. And people are actively joining in the resistance forces. But back then, against the Rohingya people, people were quite kind of confused and they were seeing this is a controversial issue and they were avoiding the topic. And I think compared to that kind of era, now it's a lot better. People are helping each other, supporting each other, standing, even though the resist, I mean, the oppression is really large, you know, it's widespread, the whole country, but still the resistance is strong and is guided by the principle, is guided by the ideas that we hate the, we don't like the military dictatorship. We need to go against it. We want federal democracy, you know, that was not the case when the genocide happening. So I, I would say we can keep going this way. And then one day the military will not last long anymore. Military will have to surrender to the peoples of Myanmar. And that's how people's power always is. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me here. That was Tinza Shonlei. She's a human rights activist from Myanmar. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check us out on podcasts. We are available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Good Things, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.